And that's, you know, the first step in what happens in a journal. They, the papers arrive at, in the editor's office and they get assigned to someone who's going to handle them. Now, this is a crucial step because one can almost determine the fate of a manuscript by the editor to whom it's assigned. Hey, folks, welcome to another episode of Methodology Matters, a podcast on evidence-based nutrition. I am very happy to be here today uh, with Dr. Johnston, uh, whom I like to call Brad, because uh, I feel like at this point we're on a first name basis. What do you think, Brad? Uh, of course, 100%. <laughs> I, I always, it always makes me kind of uncomfortable when I hear people use doctor in front of my name. <laughs> well, good. I get uncomfortable when people use doctor in front of my name too, but for a very <laughs> different reason. <laughs> uh, well, today we're talking about uh, a really interesting guy, uh, Dr. Dennis Beer. We're going to hear uh, your interview with him uh, later in the episode, but uh, I'd love for you to kind of provide some context to me and the audience about just like who he is and why we chose him. Uh, it's really great stuff that we're going to hear. Yeah, sure. So Dr. Beer is a, a very interesting guy who's, <clears throat> he's got a great reputation in the field of nutrition in terms of um, being very well known, having been the editor in chief of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition for almost 12 years. Yeah. But what really strikes me about Dr. Beer is he's very much a critical thinker. Mm -hmm. Um Number one, he's got a uh, number two. He's got a sense of humor. Yeah, he and, does. Yeah, he's he's a real character. My sense is he's not trying to be anybody that he's not. Yeah, he's kind of unapologetic, um, very data driven, but I mm. would say not ideological in um, in his interpretation of the world or of data. Interesting. So yeah, a lot of really interesting characteristics. Yeah, yeah. Hearing hearing the two of you talk, it sounds like he's very focused on the evidence and not afraid to be critical. He's been in the field for so long. It seems kind of like a rarity for someone with that kind of a reputation to to not be ideological and to be sort of open to change as he is. Would you say that's correct? I would say that's definitely correct. It's um <clears throat> it's very easy to become to, to develop, and he talks about this allegiance bias um, mm. when you're in a particular field for a long period of time and you make friends and um, yeah. you start to build maybe parts of your career around certain findings. Yeah. You can start to believe that something is um, is true when, when in fact there still may be uncertainty around some of, some of the findings that you may have been involved in discovering or um, pulmigating. Yeah, gotcha. Well, why don't you tell me uh, and our listeners a little bit more about the specifics of Dr. Beer's background, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about his time at the AJCN. Yeah, so he's a Dr. Beer is a medical doctor. He's a professor of pediatrics, director of the Children's uh, Nutrition Research Center at Baylor College of Medicine. Mm. Um, he's a member of the National Academy of Medicine. He's a former president of the American Society for Nutrition. Mm. He's won many awards from various societies and universities, including the American Society for Nutrition, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Institute of Health, and uh, Washington University School of Medicine. And as the editor-in-chief um, up until recently of the AJCN, American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, for almost 12 years, he kind of led 
really the highest impact factor journal in the field of nutrition for a long period of time. Yeah. And so is kind of was really at the forefront of what was happening in nutrition for over a decade, which, um, so he's got some stories and he's got yeah. some perspective that um, I think will be helpful for the audience. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up his perspective. So uh, now, Brad, tell me a little bit about why the AJCN is important. You know, I think uh, it, we keep talking about it as kind of a leading research journal, but you know, what does that actually mean? And, and does it have a link to evidence-based medicine? Yeah, that's a good question. If if a journal is positioned to be kind of the leading journal in its field, which AJCN is, hmm. it's, you know, for people in the field of nutrition, it's important to publish in that journal. Yeah. Um, if you publish there, that's an endorsement of your work. Yeah. The AJCN is, is very, very influential in terms of um, really what the field is thinking about and doing and what people are doing with their patients that have illness or that are trying to prevent illness. How does it link to evidence-based medicine or principles? Um, well, if it's in the AJCN, the kind of the presupposition is it must be evidence-based, it must be good evidence, it must be well done. Hmm. So, so there is a link there. It's loose. I mean, the philosophy of evidence-based medicine or nutrition is, is a very kind of different concept than what a journal is all about, but there's, yeah. it's, it's certainly linked. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, one thing that I'd like to touch on that you and Dr. Beer go over a little bit is sort of, uh, you know, he focuses on the data rather than his own ideologies and his own bias. But, you know, we're almost fighting human nature while we're doing that. So here you have this, you know, the AJCN is this top journal. And part of what you guys talk about is kind of the, you know, the hazards of expertise. Uh, how do you let's say you're uh, an associate editor for the AJCN and your work has all been about how like, you know, I don't know, a low carb diet is great for heart health. And then suddenly you're, you know, somebody submits a paper that says the opposite, you know, how do you as a scientist, as an editor, that conundrum, you've got allegiance bias, you've got expertise bias, but what if the science is sound? Yeah. Great question. Well, you know, so the interview with Denny, he um, mm -hmm. he talks a lot about what he did in his years with the AJCN, and he he I'll use a quote from him. Um, oh, at yeah. one point, he says, "One can almost determine the fate of a manuscript by the editor to whom it's assigned." Yeah, which I thought was really well articulated, and is yeah. is kind of scary if that's true. And mm. I think it's fair to say that it it can be true often. Mm -hmm. um, and that speaks to the hazards of experts. And yeah. as we talk about that, it reminds me of kind of the, the grandfather of evidence-based medicine, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Dave Sackett. Oh yeah. Who was uh, one of the individuals who was very influential um, that Dr. Gordon Guyatt talked about. He was one yeah. of Dr. Guyatt's mentors and mm -hmm. kind of started the field by kind of pushing the the idea of critical appraisal of the health sciences literature and then yeah. using that literature at the bedside. Yeah. Um, Dave Sackett was a very interesting person in that he used to joke about um, having had many careers. I think um, he talked about <laughs> something like nine or 10 careers. Um, 
Yeah. At one point, he retired from compliance uh, therapeutics. So the the evidence around how people do if they comply versus don't comply. Oh, okay. um, and in the year 2000, he wrote a short article in the British Medical Journal called The Sins of Expertness and a Proposal for Redemption. Oh. And he basically talks about how experts get in the way of new thought and new perspective and new data. Yeah. Which you know, is a kind of a, a fun paper to read, but it it also has a feeling of truth to it. Mm, yeah. And oh, by the way, this this 2000 article that we're talking about was uh, when he announced his retirement from evidence-based medicine. And Denny, Dr. Dr. Beer talks about how journals work sometimes and how if you really have an allegiance bias yeah, and you're in a, in a powerful position, you can really influence what ends up in a particular journal. Yeah. Um, and the same goes for, uh, you can influence what gets funded and what doesn't get funded. Yeah. And you can influence the general popular opinion through social media, you know, yeah. uh, in the paper in, in Sackett's 2000 paper, he joked about when he was an expert in, uh, the compliance of therapeutics, it mm-hmm. was, he, he felt like he was always given the last word Oh, in meetings yeah. through scientific journals, um, through granting agencies, if he was on, um, if wow. he was a peer reviewer. So experts are, are very powerful, um, and they're useful, but at, at, sometimes they can be a real menace. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, uh, part of what I love about the content that we've got with Dr. Beer is that he, you know, is the old adage, like the first step is is like acknowledging the problem, right? And so here you have Dr. Beer. And I think it's it probably speaks to how long he was at the journal. Here you have Dr. Beer who's sort of like, okay, well, it's perfectly natural for these people, you know, if if you're working as an associate editor for the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Chances are you've done some research. You you maybe have published published some papers. Uh, you know, you mentioned to me that Dr. Beer himself has published over like is authored like three hundred plus papers or something like that. So, you know, how do you then sort of objectively pick good science for this journal? And it sounds like Dr. Beer, you know, put some strategies into place to sort of offer some better transparency because he acknowledged that expertise can be a hazard. Yeah, um, he talks about a few strategies. I think uh, more strategies around the transparency of what's happening at the journal. So I think one of the strategies he talks about is all editors or associate editors have access to all titles and abstracts that are submitted. Yeah. And if they want to see something, they can request. So that way you forego the opportunity of, let's say, an editor-in-chief cherry-picking um, mm. what associate editor a particular paper goes to. Yeah. Yeah. He talks, he talks a little bit about this. So, um, it, yeah, it's a really fun interview. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I think useful, useful to anyone that wants kind of a closer look at the veil behind how this is published. Right. Uh, you, you know, you have mentioned to me a number of times in this podcast that sort of Part of evidence-based medicine is like using, and I love this phrase, the totality of evidence, right? And so it's important to understand, even when we're thinking about the totality of evidence, where that evidence comes from. You know, for me, who uh, with no real scientific background, just your average person on the street, right? Like 
I see an article like, oh, there's a study that came out, you know, and I might know like, oh, the New England Journal of Medicine or the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. I've heard of that. I'm sure it means it's important, right? And so you just sort of assume that the methodology is good or that it's, you know, information that's important and, th and that and therefore is true, right? But it sounds like the actual truth of the situation with methodology and research is that it's a little more nuanced than that. Yeah, I would say much more nuanced. Yeah. Uh, now we're going to hear from Dr. Beer uh, in two episodes coming up, but this first one is really more centered around uh, his time at the journal and and sort of his approach to uh, to science and kind of a, I, I think for me, it provides like a nice view of uh, not just the AJCN, but in general, how scientific journals work and sort of the, the I don't want to say the underbelly, but uh, more like the nuts and bolts, you know, a little bit how the sausage is made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, uh, without further ado, uh, here is part one of our interview with Dr. Dennis Beer. Welcome, Dr. Dennis Beer, to the Methodology Matters podcast. So I have to say, I'm very excited to have you on the show today, Dennis, given your extensive experience in the field, both in research, uh, clinical practice, and um, in many different leadership positions. As, you've, uh, as I've gathered, you've been doing this um, for over 50 years, so it's fair to say you do have extensive experience. So thank you for being here. So we're going to take some time to discuss the quality of nutrition science, particularly with respect to applied nutrition science. So let's jump into the questions that I have for you. So speaking of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, um, having been at the head for, for almost 12 years, um, and it, you know, again, as a reminder, it is the leading journal for original research in the field of nutrition. Can you tell us about um, a typical day? What did a typical day look like for you as, as an editor-in-chief? Okay, so that's uh, an interesting question because listeners, if they're not familiar with us, have to know that there are some journals like the big weekly science and nature and JAMA, where the editorial, the editors are full-time employees of the journal, and they spend all their days on the work of the journal. The vast bulk of the journals in biology, at least, and I think in most other areas of science, are edited by people who have a day job. Mm -hmm. in, in their own science. So they are doing research or related policy things or whatever in their own field. So they squeeze in the journal work. Uh, with some journals, that's not too bad because they don't have a lot of activity. And with other journals, it amounts to an immense amount of time. And I think that it's really hard to get editors whose bosses and whose systems will uh, gives them the time to actually do the job properly. So it, it becomes not only a night job, but a night and weekend and every other job. In my case, uh, I have a variety of scientific research activities and things that, that go on in my center. And the thing about big journals like the AJCN, who get a lot of papers every year, mm -hmm. is that they come in every day. There aren't any weekends or holidays. There's always something coming in that has to be dealt with, either new manuscripts 
or manuscripts that have been revised and resubmitted, editorial decisions and stuff. So it's a kind of job where you have to try as hard as you can to do some work on the journal every day, no matter what else is, you know, going crazy around you, right? So you, you, you just have to try to get to that. There are several things that you just need to move along because pa new papers are submitted. They have to be assigned to an editor. They have to go out for review, et cetera. And, you know, if you don't do that, they start to pile up. As much as humanly possible, you get to assigning new papers when they come in. And that's, you know, the first step in what happens in a journal. They, the papers arrive at, in the editor's office and they get assigned to someone who's going to handle them. Now, smaller journals, it may be just the editor and his friend. In big journals, it's a group of associate editors or some title equivalent to that. And uh, this is a crucial step because one can almost determine the fate of a manuscript by the editor to whom it's assigned. Because as the editor-in-chief, you know their biases. Uh, you know, so for example, if they don't believe in some uh, magic bullet nutrient and you get a paper on that, you can be pretty sure it's not going to make it through the review process. So, and there are, and there are great allegiance biases to certain kinds of diets, dietary recommendations, et cetera. Well, so th this is a big problem, no? Like, how do you manage that? The job of a scientist is to be open-minded, regardless of what one's presuppositions are. Right. There are different levels of that, right? One way is to uh, obviously assign it to the people who have the least biases or to gain, but they may not be the experts in the field. When people get to be real experts in a field, they, they have accumulated a lot of allegiance biases, no matter what they say. Mm -hmm. They they wouldn't call them allegiance biases. They would call them evidence-based actions because they now know so much about the field that they can dismiss certain kinds of evidence because they don't believe it's really evidence anymore. This is a significant problem, and one of the jobs of the editor-in-chief is to make sure that's minimized by spreading these things around. And the other aspect of it is to make sure that when the editor chooses referees, they choose people known to be as, as unbiased as they can be, but they're human beings, and no human being is unbiased. <clears throat> and this is a really critical issue because, again, there are referees who have built their entire careers on certain, you know, principles of their, of science and whatever their field is. And if those, if those pillars come tumbling down, their entire careers come tumbling down. So they're not terribly anxious to, to decide on the side of things that make their careers coming down. And there's someone's famous quote, which said, and I can't remember, this is not a scientific, said it's always hard to get people to make a decision if their jobs depend on it, right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's very hard. So the, the same is true here. I mean, journals, I'm sure, have dozens of ways of dealing with trying to minimize this. And, you know, some of that has changed in my lifetime. So <clears throat> I was the editor of pediatric research back in the 88, 89 or so. Mm -hmm. At that time, we didn't have the internet. 
and routine email and stuff. So the editors had to be in one place or nearby so they could get together and meet. With a paper copy. <laughs> so they, at some regular interval, they all got together. This is what happens, by the way, in the big weeklies. They're all in, they're all working in the same building. Mm. Okay, so you had to get together and it was at these face-to-face -face meetings where you could argue positions and identify biases and stuff like this that you wanted to minimize. With everything being done electronically today, uh, one doesn't get together the way one used to, although there are obviously Zoom meetings and other things that you do. But uh, in my limited experience in that, it's not the same as getting together every day. Uh, and if it's a small journal, there's no reason to get together regularly because there's only a few people involved. If it's a big journal, it's maybe a journal where the editors are full-time employees. But in the middle, there's a there are many different sized journals where the communication issue becomes really important. And uh, we did institute policies in the AJCN, which try to minimize the potential of a single editor with biases, you know, doing making a decision that other editors don't agree with. So, for example, the editors would receive the titles of the papers received that the journal got so that if they saw one they were interested in, they could ask to see it and maybe make comments on it. Things that, you know, and some journals, you know, make sure that all the editors have to sign off on a decision, things of this nature. And they're all meant to try to eliminate personal bias. So anyway, the papers come in and they're assigned. Then someone has to find the referees. In small journals, it's the same person, same editor. In big journals, it's an associate or assistant editor. And the hardest thing to do when a new paper comes in is to find the referees. A number one, the hardest thing to do. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I've got experience as an associate editor for sure. Most journals require two external referees. In the AJCN, it took us on the average of six point something invites to get two. Mm. Okay. And many cases, it was 12 invites. Right. It's difficult enough to identify the unbiased experts and then get them to agree to actually review the manuscript. In a timely fashion. Right. In a timely fashion. That's the single great limiting step at the beginning. And uh, it's really important to try to get that. So what I advise young people, you know, some journals allow you to suggest referees. In the past, if, if before the internet, if an if a author suggested a referee, the editor would have to spend two days in the library finding out who this person was and what they did, whatever. Well, today it's several keystrokes away. Yeah, so yeah. if you send the names of suggested referees, the editor can, if, if the editor doesn't know them already, can determine in a matter of two minutes whether this person is an expert in the field and has anything to do with the paper that came in. And if one suggests the best experts in the field, the editor says, this is a person who really wants to compete at the highest level. And in fact, will there's a good chance the editor is going to choose those people because they are the experts in the field. But in my perspective, you gain points for that. If you suggest someone who's never published a paper in this field, the editor says, 
It must be the person's brother-in-law. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. or, or somebody they were fellows with in the past. They don't really want to compete in this field because this person has published nothing in this field. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, in my mind, gets you real negative votes. And not only that, once the editor sees that, they're not going to pick that person anyway. It's a methods issue because the principles of how you do this at the beginning can determine the fate of a manuscript. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Methodology Matters, please head over to methodologymatters.podbean.com or you can find us on Spotify and on Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Dennis Spear, you can find his faculty profile at Baylor College of Medicine's website linked in the show notes for this episode below. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of Methodology Matters, a podcast on evidence-based nutrition.